0: What were you feeling in the alternating sequence of those verses and those lyrics? It felt jarring to me. So often we think about the sentiments that we want to conjure up at the holiday season and all the purpose of what we try to do during Advent as we prepare once again to remember the arrival of Jesus. It's good to be reminded again that we are preparing for a second arrival of Jesus. We're going to focus in on that particular part of Advent today. How many of you remember as a kid having one of those um, Advent calendars that you would open up each day and pull out another piece of chocolate or another candy or something, and you would sort of count down the days, and you knew exactly how long it was? I mean, now you probably do it to the end of the semester, but when you were a kid, Counting down days until advent my 11 year old still insists every year He wants an advent calendar so we can open each of the doors. It might just be for the chocolate But there's something about the fact that we could count that all down I Grew up in a really weird family and my parents never wanted us to celebrate Christmas on Christmas because they thought it would mess with Christmas so in our house In the weeks leading up to Christmas, you'd always go running out each morning to look under the Christmas tree to figure out if Santa came because Santa was supposed to be completely detached from the arrival of Jesus. And so, in fact, all my cousins did this, so I thought this is how the whole world celebrated Christmas. That Santa came like a thief in the night. And it was kind of interesting because it's a very different experience than when you know the date that it's coming and you can count on it and plan on it. And how much of the Advent season for us today really is the counting on and planning and execution of as we count down days to specific, specific family events, returning home, and the confidence that we have that we will experience some of the same emotions and feels and memories of years gone by. You know, before the first time Jesus came, so many people tried to predict when that would happen based on their reading of Scripture. And it wouldn't take very long until after Jesus' coming that early Christians would start to do the same thing again, trying to read from the Scriptures, when is this? Like, is it a literal? Can I open the little Advent calendar days and count it down, measuring the things taking place in the world with some degree of accuracy? Are there leaders who will be able to circle a date on a calendar? And say, this is the time when it's going to happen. Like monk Joachim of Fiore, who already predicted in 1260 that it would happen. I don't know if you know this, even Martin Luther predicted that in the year 1530, Jesus would come back again. More recently, J.N. Darby, C.I. Schofield, Hal Lindsey, and so many more in the 20th century, threw their hats in the ring, picking dates, circling calendars, predicting prognosticating, trying to read the book of Revelation like a blueprint. There's never been a lack of interest in trying to pinpoint the date or the time when Jesus will come back. And one of the questions I want us to ask this morning is just simply, why? Would you prepare differently? Would you live differently if you knew that date? You see, one of the reasons why I think Jesus never gave us that is because we're not supposed to know. We are supposed to live every day. As if it was potentially our last. Is that part of the Advent season that we're supposed to acknowledge and press into and learn from? My dear friend, Dr. Jeremy Perigo, who's normally here, this was supposed to be the one time he was going to preach this semester, and he was really looking forward to it. He ended up getting really sick and is at home and couldn't be here today. So this is actually the second time this week that on short notice I've had the opportunity and blessing of preparing a message in a very condensed period of time. This happened on Sunday as well when our pastor's um, father-in-law passed away and had to do the same thing again on Sunday. So there's this new, I don't have no idea what's gonna happen by Friday this week. But on Sunday at church, Dale Voss caught me afterwards and said, well, you know what they say, you always need to be prepared at any point in time to either pray, preach, Or die. It sounds a little bit morbid, but consider maybe the Advent season in that way. Are each and every one of us prepared at any given moment to meet our Savior? Would you be disappointed if Jesus came back before Christmas? Because we had plans. We had stuff we were going to get done, and Jesus, there you go, messing up Christmas. Herod had plans. Caesar had plans. The disciples had plans. Jesus messed their Christmas ideas up, good and proper, didn't he? What are we counting down to? And what are we counting down for? Hey, there we go. All right, next slide. Oh, were you trying to give me the remote? Let's do that. Sorry, you come forward and I go turn around. This is one of my favorite websites to check out sometimes. It's raptureready.com. And... <laughs> you don't read this every morning? This is my Advent calendar. You could say... ...that the Rapture Index is a Dow Jones Industrial Average of End Time Activity. But I think it would be better if you viewed it on a prophetic, as a prophetic speedometer. You can see up in the top left-hand corner, the Rapture Index as of today is 183. Which, translated according to their scale, means fasten your seatbelt. And they measure all these different things like um, debt and trade and false Christs and the occult... ...and l- the levels of liberalism taking place in the world and what's happening in Russia... And if you just add these all together and figure it all out, there's, it's much higher likelihood when the index is high that the rapture is about to happen. There are people who take this really seriously, and there's all different ways that people interpret the end times. Now, maybe it's just because we want to be in control, and it's our nature. But The reality is that Jesus told us how to prepare for it. In fact, Jesus spoke a great deal about the end of the world. The passage that you heard read right before it came up from Matthew chapter 24 is part of a giant two-chapter series called the Eschatological Discourse. Eschaton, last things, um, ology, study of. So this is the study of the last things, this eschatology that we have in Christianity about study of the end things, of the last things, of the end times. Jesus' eschatological discourse, where he tells five successive parables all about how we can understand what it means to be ready for his second coming. And it has to do with preparing not merely to get ready to remember his first coming, but instead to actually be prepared for his second. I'm going to keep reading from that segment with you. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. So therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later the others came also. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. But about that day. But about that day. That's how it starts off here. No one knows. And so there's not even the sun. There's an interesting part of this passage, something that Jesus himself doesn't even know. The biblical scholars before Jesus came didn't know, and it says in the passage that Jesus himself doesn't either. And yet trying to map out how this is all going to play out has been um, the obsession of several different, even denominational structures, or how we understand the importance of um, our theology and where does our eschatology determine so much more of our theology. How important is this to get it right? Can we get it right? Entire denominations, a U.S. foreign policy at times regarding the Middle East has been birthed out of how we understand our eschatology. You can break it down really complex. Maybe you're a pre-tribulation, post-millennial, literal rapture dispensationalist. Maybe you're a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. The real importance, I think, here is not to go beyond what the Bible actually says. To simply submit ourselves again in how we prepare and understand our Advent season towards the second coming of Christ just simply by what Scripture says. No more. Otherwise, think about when we start prognosticating and guessing how off we can end up being in this regard. I don't know how many of you read the Left Behind series by Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye growing up. 80 million copies of these books sold. I remember Christian schools who were actually taking these books and using them as a Bible curriculum at a time. A Bible curriculum. It's even spawned a whole series of very poorly made movies. I bring this up not to bring mockery to that in any way, shape, or form, but simply to point out the fact that there's a humility to come to every text with. That just as it was in the days of Noah, the time before the flood, no one saw it coming. So I want you to imagine, if there is sort of a rapture, we're trying to understand, you've probably heard that term before in different places. Let's read the text as the text presents itself and see where it takes us. Everyone was eating and drinking and marrying and then wham! They were taken away in the flood and drowned for their wickedness. Jesus says that's just like how it will be in the end. Everybody will be out and about in their daily chores. Men about their work, women about their work, and then the end. Is it possible when coming back to this text to understand that maybe we've actually even, for those of us who believe and follow the ideas of rapture, that even that we've actually had backwards? Notice something important in the story of Noah. Noah. Who actually gets taken by the flood? Is it the believing or the unbelieving? That's right, it's the unbelieving. The believing are saved, the unbelieving are washed away in the flood as Jesus purges, as God purges the earth. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says. So think about that for a minute. Usually in popular Christian literature, the end times, or left behind series, and many of our different theological backgrounds, who is it that gets taken in the rapture? The believers and the followers of Jesus get taken out of this world. But according to this text, by Jesus, it actually seems to be the opposite. I want to be left behind. That you want to be here as the evil is taken away because God's investment in this place when he made it and said it was good and then he made it those in his own image and said it was very good and then when it came time to save this place because of all of our brokenness, he came and met us here, and it didn't take us out of it. And then when the Bible closes in the last two chapters, the new Jerusalem, heaven comes down from heaven and invades this space and redeems it and makes it new. There is something so significant about the way that we understand a theology of vocation at Dort University. And it has to do with the way that we read texts like this. The goodness of creation. God's interest in restoring it. Jesus coming here. Work. Daily life and rhythms, chores, labor, marriage, all these things that existed before the fall. Enjoying creation in time with God. It gets interrupted by the entrance of sin, but the vision cast for us scripturally is that one day again we will come back and there will be a restoration and the garden becomes a garden city. The biblical story is all about God fixing this place. Fixing us. This should inform how we think about preparing our lives. The work that we do, the study that we do, the things that we do are not merely temporal. But if God is deeply invested in this place to the point of sacrificing His own Son for us in the Christmas story and coming back to finish what He began, then the bridges that we build and the students that we teach and the cosmos that we explore, and the particles that we examine, and all the little things that we do don't just have an interest to us like some sort of temporal hobby we visit, what if they have eternal significance? The notes that we play, the songs that we learn, the games that we teach our children, all of this enjoying creation is part of it. It's important. Enjoying one another. See, this is actually, when we get at the why and not the what, the true purpose of prophecy. As biblical scholar Michael Green tells us the purpose of prophecy is not to give us a history written in the future tense because prophecy is not foretelling, it's forth It's about communicating the will of God and not the details of his plans. Just like the ten bridesmaids in the parable, were always, um, we are always to be prepared for his second coming. We are always to be ready for when Jesus calls. But notice that this doesn't mean not actually living in the world. The fact that the people in the story of Noah were eating and drinking and marrying wasn't sinful or wrong. That wasn't why the flood came and took them away. Even the fact that the bridesmaids in Jesus' parable were sleeping wasn't wrong. When we read the parable closely, it says that all ten of them were sleeping. Even the ones who had extra oil and were prepared. The point is that doing the everyday things of life isn't wrong. So to be well prepared for the second coming of Jesus doesn't mean negating the things that we do each and every day of our lives. In fact, it means paying closer attention to them. Because the preparation that we have for the second coming of Jesus gets played out in very small things. Very small acts of obedience and faithfulness. Five different parables throw this eschatological discourse, and every one of them, from the thief in the night to the bridegroom arriving when he's, he's good and ready, all of them have to do with being ready now. Do you preach, pray, or die on a moment's notice? Keep watch, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. And so we don't know when He's coming back. There isn't an Advent calendar we get to count down, or a website Index of activity we get to watch. So the way and manner in which we prepare is incredibly purport- important. At the culmination of the eschatological discourse, this is where it finishes. So this is, I want to read this as an Advent text, as a preparation for the second coming of what could happen at any moment as we await the second arrival of Jesus in our planet. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me and they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's a harsh Advent text. Is it not? Consider the preparation that we're being told about in this. That the best way to prepare for Jesus is not going to come down to whether or not we're choosing out a turkey or a ham for Christmas dinner. And it's not about what we can accumulate It might be more about what we can give away. It might be more about not the wealth that we can get, but the poverty that we can see. Our preparation might be a greater, more indicated by a heart oriented towards another that moves further outside of ourselves during an Advent season than more into the things that we are looking forward to ourselves. We become so preoccupied at this time of year with preparing the things to be just right in our own home. When according to Jesus, we need to be spending more time preparing and planning for those who don't have a home. And not the next piece of clothing that I want to put on the list that I hope somebody buys for me for Christmas, but instead the one that I need to put on somebody else who doesn't have what I have. It's interesting to me that at the end of this eschatological discourse, Jesus says the best way to prepare for his coming is not to guess the date right and it's not to have a neat and tidy theology. It's what did you do for the least of these? Brothers and sisters, may we incorporate that into our Advent planning. May we be prepared for Jesus at any single moment because we have eyes to see him in any single moment just as he described himself, poor, naked, hungry, thirsty, in prison, and often without. Can we recalibrate our advent to look for Jesus in those spaces and not in the well-protected warmth of what we experience in front of our own fireplaces or what hangs in the stockings over them, but rather what we're putting in here because we're trying to give it away everywhere out there. May you be ready for Christmas. May you be ready for Jesus. May we all. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. And We want, we want to have homes that are welcoming and hospitable. We want to have lives and hearts and hands that are welcoming and hospitable. We want to see You in those around us, and we just ask that as we prepare this year for Christmas, as we prepare for the end of a semester, as we prepare for a break, that you continue to work in our hearts that our greatest goals and dreams would not be fixated on the accumulation of more wealth, but rather on those who have none. Teach us to move beyond ourselves, to sacrifice this time of year, Lord, you are the perfect model. You emptied yourself. You came here completely dependent on even others for life. You took the very nature of a servant and you set aside all your glory. Lord, we're reminded again today that preparation for meeting you has a lot to do with looking like you. May you work in us this season. And may we invite that work and receive it wherever you want to make it happen. In the name of the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, our Savior Jesus, we pray.